0: This has been one of the hardest weeks I've gone through in a long time, and it's not because this is new to me. It's not because what happened in Minneapolis and what happened in Louisville and what happened in Georgia are unique instances. It's been specifically painful because this is not.
1: Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Fox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Jane Koston, ProPublica's Dara Lind. Obviously, there have been some news events uh, occurring in the streets of America uh, since the time we, we last sat down to record. I think sometimes you get a news story that is sufficiently dominant that I don't think we really need to recount what the events have been or what it is that we are talking about particularly because the sort of period of, of maximum tensions uh, looks like it is it is likely beyond us. And it's a good opportunity to, I don't know, discuss the issues uh, as as we do here. It's obviously hard to know where to start on a topic that, you know, is about so much more than than one person or one set of protests, but really is, you know, woven through American history in a in a kind of fairly profound way so i don't know Could, should i be lame ask jane to explain all of uh, racism to us
2: <laughs> i mean we can i think that there are a lot of meta feelings around this for anyone who has been kind of concerned about or thinking about you know, like racism in America before this moment, um, especially for those of us who like have a certain amount of professional responsibility to like think critically about these issues and know what's going on in America. And while I know that the weeds is not like anyone's podcast home for emotionally processing the news of the day, you know, touchy feeliness is not our strong suit as a, uh, as a product. I think that it's, it's worth thinking through a little bit, just how emotionally taxing this is for people who, you know, have already been doing the work in the streets for, you know, people of color themselves who like have to take the lead on something that they've already been quietly, you know, trying to fix in their own lives. And also like to a much lesser extent, but to one that's very relevant for discussions like this one, you know, the weird emotional disconnect that can happen when you're someone who's been very involved or think or very focused on these issues and suddenly everyone else appears to be paying attention to them. It can be hard to keep an open mind to how much things really are changing uh, rather than either saying, you know, where the hell was everyone and being a hipster about it or saying, OK, this isn't going to last because, you know, we've seen previous iterations of what have looked like a national reckoning on racism in general or on police brutality in particular that haven't necessarily looked as broad as the current movement
0: currently looks. This has been, I think, for any other Black person listening or anyone, this has been profoundly painful in a way that I don't think I expected to find it. I've been in journalism Not as long as some other people, because I did other things because of how the recession worked in that, like my dream job getting out of college was like, go work for Politico. And that's not really what happened. But I have been a black person longer than I've been a journalist. And I've been thinking about these issues and very close to these issues and emotionally entwined with these issues longer than I've had to write about them or talk about them to other people or to make sense of them. And I think that that's been particularly challenging. This is not an issue like Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, where I'm like, it's just written down here what this is. And then I take that and then I explain it to other people. This is tied in with the time I was in my dad's car when he got pulled over on our way home from picking me up from dance class and the cop came to the window and was very suspicious of my dad for owning the car he owned, which is a Mazda Miata, which is the most 45, 50 year old dad car you could possibly purchase in the Midwest. And then he, you know, the cop sees me wearing an actual pink tutu and suddenly the entire attitude of the car changes because I'm a very small child and the police officer clearly notices that there is something different about this interaction. And so all of this is tied up with so much of the backstories of the people who've experienced any piece of it. And I I think it's important to know that for many people, the first time that they started seeing something happening was with the taped murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota. But for those of us who've been paying attention to issues of bad policing and criminal justice. This has been going on for a very long time. And there have been a lot, you know, Radley Bauco and a host of other people, especially within libertarian circles, have been talking about these issues. They've been talking about asset forfeiture. They've been talking about criminal justice reform from a lot of different angles. And they've also been talking about Cases like that of Breonna Taylor, you know, a woman shot dead by police while she was asleep and no officers have been charged. But don't worry, the Louisville police has brought in an outside consultant to help them figure out what to do or the murder of Amud Arbery, where that, you know, a case that took place in February and only now are we starting to get some more evidence because it seems that in this specific, very small community, the police were largely willing to be like, eh, that seems fine to chase a man down in trucks and kill him. And so, you know, we're going to talk about some of the ideas that have come up about reforming police. And I will say that, you know, to Dara's point, I am hopeful that the change in general attitude and also what I would ar- argue is a general an increasing lack of trust in authority that actually, ironically, might be a helpful means to get progress on criminal justice reform, progress that may not have been possible a couple of years ago, progress that may not come necessarily in terms of law right now, but comes in terms of attitude. If you look at the polling, especially of white voters, the, the, the voters whose views need to be shifted in order to get somewhere on this issue. You see it in tweets from Republicans Scott Walker, who says, you know, between defunding the police and reforming the police, I'd rather reform the police, which I'm like, hey, we're getting somewhere. We're all on the same page. Let's move it along. But I think that this has been one of the hardest weeks I've gone through in a long time. And it's not because this is new to me. It's not because what happened in Minneapolis and what happened in Louisville and what happened in Georgia are unique instances. It's been specifically painful because this is not. You know, since uh, Dara and I both grew up in Cincinnati and in April, 2001, an unarmed black kid. And it's interesting that we keep having to say unarmed to make it clear like, oh, well, it was bad specifically for this reason was shot dead by police and riots ensued. And there was a whole host of events. And if you, you know, I was in eighth grade and I remember my dad had to come home from work at 3 PM because the curfew started at either five or seven. I can't remember which, but, so much of our conversations that we've been having about this have been almost afraid to touch on the actual issue. We've been arguing about terminology, about police reform. We've been arguing about what happened outside the the White House last week and whether tear gas is tear gas if it doesn't say tear gas written in big letters. And so much of this I think has been a urge to tiptoe around the edges of the issue instead of talking about it more specifically. And I, I'm I'm really looking forward to having a conversation today about what we're actually looking at and what we're actually dealing with because I think Matt's made some good points about how the role that race plays into police brutality and to police violence is so critical. But there's also the the police brutality and the police violence that happens against all people that is an overall problem it's interesting because you see some conservatives attempting to make that into a cudgel like oh the police kill these white people and i am like, yes that's the point that's also bad it doesn't become awesome if white people are dying like that's not i want the police to not do that at all to anyone that i think that that's kind of where i'm interested in thinking about what is the context for this and where are we going from here So I
2: I do think it's worth like, clearly, I mean, at this point, it seems like there are two, and by separate, I don't mean like non-overlapping, but there are two like currents of change that are happening. One is a, you know, something of a reckoning on racism in general. I wouldn't presume to predict why the murder of George Floyd galvanized so many people who hadn't been previously galvanized, but I do think that the cumulative exhaustion of the Almard Arbery and Brianna Taylor stories had a lot to do with it. And Arbery's murder in particular as something that was also like where there was video evidence, but where it wasn't just it wasn't a case of police brutality, it was a matter of official indifference in the face of, you know, what appears to have been essentially a hate crime, that that is both kind of a different strain in the genesis of this, and it's led to some, you know, I would say Me Too style insofar as it's really being borne a lot by personal experiences, but some kind of reconsiderations in other spaces like media, academia, Black people in particular and people of color more broadly being more forthright about the ways in which racism has, you know, been encoded into their lives and the institutions that they've interacted with, and asking people who benefit from the status quo to do more than just say nice words and step up. And there's kind of a leveling up of expectations of what allyship looks like that is reminiscent of Me Too, where the Me Too movement was asking men who considered themselves allies to like do more to stand up for and believe they're, you know, the women who, that they knew and trusted who were being harassed. This is asking White, you know, white people who consider themselves allies to do more in terms of giving money and time and, you know, make sure that they are not putting the burden of activism on their black peers to take care of all of this. There's also a a, you know a national debate on policing which does get into the question of like is this a race neutral problem you know is this a broader problem in what ways is it helpful to think about this as a problem for black america versus just america writ large but it's also just like as a policy debate it is somewhat more limited than this kind of broader national reckoning of like hey If you are a white person in America and you are not professionally a police officer, you have an academic member of the polity interest to be, like, super reductionist about it in the policing debate, you have a much more implicated interest in the broader national reckoning about, okay, of all of the institutions, any of which you as an individual may have passed through, how has your whiteness been an invisible benefit to you? And in what ways can you as an individual rectify that?
0: I'm just interested because I think so much of this, it's funny because, you know, I cover conservative media and you've seen this interesting switch among some some on the right where a couple of weeks ago when we were debating the stay at home uh, orders and the protests against stay at home orders there was a sense that like the police who are enforcing these stay at home orders are violating our constitutional rights and now you're seeing some of these same people making argument of like you know the republicans need to be the party of police because i think that for some people there's very much of a sense um Chris Hayes wrote a book, I believe the title is um, A Colony in a Country, where there's a a real sense that there are people who should be policed, namely Black people, non-white people, poor people, the homeless, and people who should not be policed. And there is a clear delineation between if you police those people, that's great. If you are policing people who are committing from noise violations to the crime that resulted in George Floyd's murder, which is passing a counterfeit $20 bill, allegedly, that policing is fine. But if you are enforcing a stay at home order or if you are trying to break up a party at a park well that is you know that's stalinism and it's interesting because i think that that gets into a little bit of this idea of what the job of the police is and what that is supposed to be doing but i think um matt i'd be interested because i think that you've you've been talking a little bit about this issue and about kind of the role of police more generally.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think in America, right, it's well-established that we have a range of social problems and that the general tendency is for the impact of those problems to fall more severely on African-Americans. I mean, the obvious one, that we did a paper on this recently, um, you know, like air pollution, right? Like air pollution is bad. Uh, It's bad for your health. Uh, It it kills a lot of people. Um, It disproportionately impacts African-American neighborhoods. And yet, I don't think one would say... Well, what we need exactly is to like level out the amount of toxic fumes that people are inhaling. You want, you want like less, right? And so, I mean, one interesting thing in, in policing is that American policing is extremely violent. Um, the per capita rate at which American police departments kill white people is off the charts compared to any other uh, developed country. It's it's about double the Canadian rate uh, and much, much higher than any place in, in Europe or Asia. The African-American rate, as I'm sure you've heard, is to three times uh, higher than than the white rate. So the perception of racial inequity here seems entirely borne out by the statistics. But the context in which that happens is a society that is more violent overall, right? Uh, There's a much higher murder rate in the United States than any place else. And that falls disproportionately on African-American communities. Uh, There's much higher levels of police violence, which falls disproportionately in African-American communities. And we have seen, I mean, one of the the striking things of these protests has been the police response to the protesters, which has gone well beyond trying to stop looting incidents. And we've seen I mean, if you you log on any night, and there's going to be a dozen different examples of some cop somewhere, uh, beating on somebody shoving somebody, uh, probably the highest profile example was a park police officer who it seemed like he just slugged an Australian television news journalist. And because the government of Australia just bothered to stand up for its citizens rights, that became a sort of minor international incident but it it means that uh, obviously the race conversation and the policing conversation are related to each other and they come together for for specific reasons but there is a to an extent i think a free floating question about how are american police departments managed about who goes into them, about what is the culture in policing, also about just what is the prevalence of firearms uh, in America, right? I mean, if you want to understand why so many people die violent deaths in the United States, all kinds of violent deaths, that has an enormous amount to do with the uh, amount of easily concealable handguns. And then there are questions of race and racism that extend far beyond policing. To get to a sympathetic view about about the police. I would say that America's police departments are currently being made to bear more than their share of the weight of sort of existential guilt on the part of white liberal America.
2: So I think that given that right now, as it stands, there is kind of a broader debate with anybody left of the center line in America of whether policing is an institution that can be saved or whether it needs to be, you know, melted down for scrap and replaced with some kind of alternative. I, we're bracketing that conversation at present um, in part because there's kind of some fast moving stuff on the ground that might give us some more easy ways to talk about it, but also because you can talk in a meaningful way about specific policies without necessarily endorsing the idea that there isn't anything broader that can be reimagined right like just stipulating that like speaking uh, concretely does not mean the same thing as speaking incrementally so if you're taking like the armedness of american society as an example and jane this gets back to what you were talking about earlier with the cincinnati riots in 2001 a lot of the reason that we focus so much on and then by we i mean like both the media and you know Americans more generally uh tend to focus so much on police killings of unarmed people is that the crucial question in a police killing is the justifiability of it right there is like there are legal reasons and training reasons that a police officer is is like permitted to kill someone if they have an objectively reasonable belief that they're in danger at the time and so it's very hard to judge that after the fact externally. It is one of the big reasons why police officers are extremely uh, unlikely to be indicted for any of this. And if indicted, if they're unlikely to be convicted by a jury, because it's just very hard to like look at somebody and say it was objectively unreasonable for you to feel under threat at that point, even though we know that that codes into much bigger questions of like, what kind of person is likely to be seen as a threat? And when you are in an, you know, God, I just, I feel like we're reliving so much, 2014 so much right now, because I can just, I'm thinking right now of the officer who killed Michael Brown and his, you know, depositions in the grand jury deliberations and how much they aligned with this script of, well, he was a large, threatening black man and probably on drugs, which meant he couldn't feel any pain. And so it was terrifying what he was going to do to me. Like that gets into, you know, very big questions of how racism is encoded into like individual circumstances and psyches. But it's also just very hard to adjudicate from a policy basis. What you can look at is, okay, If you are the police officer and you have a gun and the person who's facing you doesn't have a gun, that's a decent indicator that any fear you may have been feeling for your life was not a reasonable fear and that you were essentially you know, judging the likelihood that you might be injured in some non-lethal sense against the chance that you were going to kill the person you're facing up against. And so, you know, I remember when I was doing like analysis of the 2012 supplemental homicide report by the FBI, because that's the only even close to anything official data set of police killings like, you know, bracketing out, okay, what are the situations in which the officer killed the the suspect or, like, killed the victim? What are the weapons with which the officer killed the victim? Because, like, in a long gun situation, that's more likely to be... You're not likely to just pull that out in the middle of a confrontation. That's likely to be, you know, you're acting as a sniper because there's been an identified threat. So, like, those circumstances, yes, there is a bigger uh, racial disparity that actually does serve kind of usefully to shed some light on the question of, like, well, white people get killed by police, too, as with many other facts with the criminal justice system. The evidence we have about white people's contact with the police suggests that if you are a white person who has been who is in contact with the police, you are more likely to have done something wrong than if you are a black person who is in contact with the police or like, you know, has has contact as like a subject in the system. There is definitely a portion of this that is about just the circumstances under which police officers are allowed to use force and what kinds of force are justified, I think it's easy to look at what's been happening in terms of like the crowd control or, or you know, anti-riot, quote unquote, situations where we've seen a lot of excessive force used over the last week by police and si- and see them as the same problem as the likelihood of, you know, shooting, uh, You know like of shooting someone or like kneeling on a man's neck you know during a stopover like single counterfeit bill but like if you're looking at it from a training perspective those are separate problems because crowd control is not something a police officer is supposed to be doing on a regular basis whereas like interacting with individual people without killing them is part of the job description
0: yeah part of the reason that we're having this discussion And I think that it seems like such an obvious point to me, but apparently it's not, is that if you are a police officer, you are an agent of the state and your job is to enforce the law and the state has given you the power to kill people who violate the law. So your responsibility to not fuck this up is really, really high. That's part of the point here. And so it's interesting because I think that, you know, there's a lot tied into this. And we're going to talk about some of the solutions, talk about qualified immunity and talk about some of these other issues in our next episode, because otherwise we will be here here all day while I yell about qualified immunity. But. I think that there is a sense for many people, and there's been some interesting research on this, that for many white people, their interactions with the police are a lot of times, as Dara put it, if they are themselves a suspect, but also if they call the police. And so if your interactions with the police have been when someone stole something out of my backyard i called the cops and they took a report and that's basically what happened and i never really did get that stuff back but i filed a report a claim to my insurance company it all worked out okay if that is your experience of policing versus the experience that many people have who are in communities that are predominantly black which is that the police are just there all the time Just around there are I mean, I can right now I am look at looking outside my apartment window and there are two cop cars sitting at the corner of my block as there typically are um, just there doing something and i think that you know there's a lot of argument and i know matt will get into this There's a lot of argument about public policing and the broken windows theory of if you just see the police you won't do anything but that also leads to people having more interactions with police for low level offenses than they may have in communities you know if i went to say um Kindly Town, or I went to Cathedral Heights, which is another neighborhood in Washington D.C. that's near the Washington Cathedral and is a pre- very wealthy, predominantly white area. Someone raised this point on Twitter, but like I probably will not see cops there just sitting around doing anything. And there, there very much is a sense of who gets policed and who is not policed. And it's not as if one form of crime is better or worse. Crime is crime. But there is definitely where the police are and where the police aren't. And we've even seen NYPD in New York. And I think that this gets into the idea that like, ah, this is about democratic cities, which I would actually say that like policing is actually a bipartisan problem. But you see NYPD who are like, we will absolutely beat up these protesters. But if you're looting the Nike, eh, That's for someone else to deal with. And so I think that 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 discrepancy is very visible. Well, but so, Jane, I mean, I,
1: I do want to push back on that a, a little bit. I mean, I, I think that if you go to community meetings in Shaw, where where we live, that you frequently see people saying when there are crimes happening, I mean, African-American people as well as white people saying, oh, I want more police in this neighborhood. I think this idea that I've seen circulating on social media that somehow in affluent white neighborhoods, like there aren't police officers patrolling around That doesn't seem at all true to me. I mean, it is true that police officers deploy disproportionately into sort of crime hotspots. And that's, I think, a validated policing tactic that happens in communities because people don't like it when there's crime. And that a frequent problem we see, I mean, you alluded to this in New York, and there I agree with you, is that the NYPD got mad. Right. They were mad that activists were criticizing them. And so the way they responded to that was by being brutal toward peaceful protesters while doing nothing to stop looting and vandalism in Midtown so that they could then turn around the next day and say, ah, ha, ha, look how terrible you people are. And that, to me, is a significant problem, right? I mean, communities that are not that don't have political voice and that aren't taken seriously don't have their problems addressed, whether that's potholes or trash pickup or police services or or anything else. Um, you know, and it's it's telling to me that we we had um you know a, a primary race in in DC in Ward Seven, uh in sort of the 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 poorest uh Part of the city and the the incumbent mayor, uh, sorry, the former mayor incumbent councilman Vince Gray, he uh, got attacked because he had repeatedly been asking for more money for police, for more police for his neighborhood, and and he won in a in a landslide because people wanted that there. What I think the question is is like, actually, what do the police officers do?
0: I think that that's that's really it. You know, and I think that that's a really good pushback to my point because I was thinking, I think it's not even, and I think that I was wrong there. I think it's not even so much about like having the police here. It's like, what are the police here to do? And I've argued right. before that we have this simultaneous crisis of over policing and under policing. You know, you have the under policing, which is that, cl- you know, people with clear mental health issues, or you have issues of kind of the, the things that people sometimes call the police over, which in some neighborhoods doesn't result in anything, and you know you have in certain neighborhoods the "if you see st- something, say something" adage doesn't really work because what you're getting is that if you say you know if you are under policing for people who are causing fights outside the grocery store or under policing for crimes that make people feel unsafe in their homes, but you're over policing for traffic violations, over policing for a broken taillight, over policing for, you know, the kind of things where it's, you know, as we saw in Ferguson, um, I think that one of the biggest outcomes from Ferguson was the Department of Justice report, which showed that the City of Ferguson, Missouri, was the people who lived there were essentially used to fund the police department through the accumulation of fines and fines right. on a lot of low level offenses. And there, um, there's a writer, Chris Arnade, who wrote a piece about kind of libertarianism for me, but not for thee, which is what a lot of these communities experience, which is kind of like you want the police to do things. Well, the police are going to write you up 87 times for for violations that you can't afford to pay, which is why you're going to wind up in jail because you owe five hundred fifty dollars. But if you call the cops because somebody broke into your house, if you call the cops because something else has happened, you might not get a response back. You know, when I used to there's a neighborhood in D.C. where I used to live, where we called the cops um i've only called the cops three times in my life and one time that no one came it's a simultaneous issue and i but i think you're right that it's not so much like where the police and where the police aren't it's what are they here to do what what's being enforced and how and why
2: and you know part of that is just an institutional problem right like part of this is the fact that police departments as currently constituted have both like beat cops who are who have areas of geographical jurisdiction who are supposed to be you know to the extent that like the department cares about uh police community relations they're the ones who are supposed to be you know doing the work in that regard and specialty units and like On the one hand, that can result in problems where a poor relationship with your beat cops means you're unlikely to speak to homicide detectives when they come through. On the other hand, that can mean that any positive interactions between community members and police uh, that a beat cop does or, you know, a police force that takes very seriously its responsibility not to escalate force unduly gets undermined by a, you know, specialty task force that is just kind of rolling through that is being measured on different metrics and that isn't accountable to the community in the same way. But it also, I think, more fundamentally gets to the fact that police are for, to a certain extent, just like human psychological reasons, but also that this is a strong professional message sent from training all the way through everything, is that police are told that the most important thing for them is to make sure they get home alive and unharmed. And that factors into a risk calculation in terms of, you know, not being willing to go out on calls that might be dangerous or being more stressed in those situations, which is counterproductive to like clear decision making. And it also results in a kind of warped calculus of use of force, because both because police officers are pretty much universally at this point, supposed to be de-escalating force in any given confrontation, and because at most you're supposed to be matching the level of force, if you're concerned, again, not just about your life, but about any bodily harm coming to you, you are more likely to escalate. The question of are police actually being asked to risk putting their lives on the line, uh, or at least to be more open to that possibility, is... If we're talking about anything short of abolition, and in this case, even if we're talking about abolition, we're talking about someone else who might be asked to be on the front lines of a potentially dangerous situation where someone could get hurt. The question of is there a role in society domestically that we are willing to say, look, your role is not to protect yourself your role is to protect the public. That is an ask that hasn't been made and like may not be makeable of police as they currently exist.
1: And there's a there's a question that that I think that relates to, which we've really seen squarely over these past couple of weeks, which is democratic control of the police departments. Right? That if you, I, I've been sort of fascinated. We get there's always so much attention on anything that happens in New York City, um, and in a weird way by the numbers, New York City is actually a great policing success story. Um, They have a, a, a much lower rate of violent crime than the typical American city, also a much lower rate of police violence against civilians. So... You could imagine a world in which the community police relationship there is really good, is is really strong. And and we have a mayor who he he's a white mayor, but he's married to an African American woman. He has an African American political base. So you could see New York emerging from this as, as the great model. Um, and that's, of course, not what's happened at all. You have a police department that openly thumbs its nose at Uh, the the community that the mayor of the city appears to be terrified of and has appeared to be terrified of them for for years, because there is a sense that police officers are they're not just beyond discipline in the most egregious cases where you have extreme use of force, but in just kind of their their day to day conduct. There's a a long running in in urbanist circles. It's not that important, but it's but it's telling of of police officers abusing parking placards so that they don't need to follow uh, the the law in New York City and covering up badge numbers and, and things like that. And that's to say, you have a group of people who act like, uh, there was this old line about, uh, Prussia that it was an army that had a country attached. And it seems like a lot of big city police departments see themselves in that light. That's, I think, the, the meaning of the thin blue line flags, um, of the punisher pins, right? That the police sort of exist above and beyond the desires of the democratically constituted polity and that they are there to defend their their own kind of corporate interests. And it's very troubling, I think, in a way that extends to racialized issues, because there's a great Pew survey showing police officers attitudes and um, they're very askew, much more I guess, racially conservative would be the polite way to put it uh, than the average member of, of the public. But it it goes to everything, right, that they don't feel that it is their obligation to just do what the leadership of a city wants them to do, that it's their job to make the city do what they think they should do. And that's very Destructive. I mean, there's a reason why the military puts so much emphasis on drilling professionalism into the people who have those kind of jobs. And I feel like we really don't, don't see that in, in police.
2: I do kind of want to push back on the idea that this is kind of a general policing problem. I think, you know, obviously, like, the median police officer is more likely to, like you know, is is more racially conservative than the average, like, person of their race, that they are more likely to feel under attack for sure. But I think that there are also, there's also just a labor relations problem here, which, you know, I've talked a bunch about in the context of, like, both cultures of law enforcement and cultures of immigration enforcement, where both the unions and the benevolent, you know, the, like, like the benevolent association kind of, like, other kind of affiliation groups around law enforcement are the people who are seen as having the voice of, you know, like the voice of law enforcement, the voice of the lying cops. And there is an incentive for them to be, you know, more outspoken and like to a certain extent that that reflects the revealed preferences of the police. Right. Like the Minneapolis Police Department did not have to elect as its union head a dude who says that he's been involved in several shootings and hasn't felt bad about you know hasn't hasn't felt like a moment of of like emotion about any of them or is you know in involved with like a biker gang that has you know some you know quiet white supremacist possible affiliations like you don't necessarily need to elect that dude at the same time there is an extent to which it's just not super profitable for an individual police officer who doesn't agree with that line to try to work from the inside to change it. If anything, they're more likely to like try to work with management to change it because police management is in a weird way more democratically accountable Right. You know, like you can the the mayor can fire the police chief when the police officers don't do the right thing. He can't fire the head of the police union. And so I think we are seeing to a certain extent a skew of this. I mean, obviously, this is all being subjected to a high degree of stress right now. And the widespreadness of just police aggression and impunity is suggestive. Um, But I think in terms of this like Punisher style feeling of the people who have entrusted us to protect them don't understand the kind of crap we have to go through is a fairly, you know, I I, I think that it ma- it doesn't necessarily have to be the belief of every single police officer to be the belief that, like, shapes police incentives because institutionally it's represented.
0: The cultural issue here is so important because... I think that there's been a lot of conversation about how, you know, if police departments are more diverse, if police departments are a better indicator of what America looks like, I don't think that that gets at at all what the issue is here, which is a perceived divide between the police and the people who are policed, you know, in our in Cincinnati, there were photographs of a police department taking down the American flag and putting up the thin blue line flag. Matt tweeted it, and, but it's the clearest indication of an idea that the police are this separate thing. They are a separate culture. We talk about them in some ways like an identity group, which it's not. You can become a police officer. The standards differ from place to place and you can become not a police officer. People have are former police officers. And yet how this group of people is talked about in a very specific way. And we're starting to see more of this coming from conservatives, but Scott Walker, who I brought up earlier when he was going on his union busting kick in, you know, 2011, 2012, he excluded police unions and firefighter unions from that calculus, which, and then, Lo and behold, he got a huge number of votes from police officers and firefighters and police unions and kind of the the idea of police and the idea of what they face purportedly is almost more important than what actually happens. You see how police honor other officers who commit acts of brutality because that's what matters more within this world of policing. And it's it's weird because I'm just like, is this just the movie Donnie Brasco or something? But like it's made its way into the culture that there's this understanding that the police are this separate entity and that you can't make them mad. In New York, if you make the police mad, something bad will happen. And it's interesting because actually, you know, when the end of Stop and Frisk did not result in a massive upturn in crime. But I think it's a real issue that law enforcement is believed to be this separate sphere, this separate caste that is untouchable by pe- the people whom are being policed. And that's, you know, I've talked a little bit about this, but I think that. One of the challenges here is that, you know, I think that police unions in general either need to be reconsidered or eliminated. But also we have to have a big conversation about, like, what are police supposed to do? What laws are they supposed to enforce? Do we need those laws and get at this cultural question of there should not be a thin blue line between us and the people who are policing us? We've seen time and time again in unjustified police shootings, that when and Dara mentioned this, the idea of like, well, I feared for my life, and if you know the amount of the I feared for my life calculus that is not available to no everyday citizens for a reason because law enforcement has that power, but they have that power and yet they have not. Sur- in in my view, been using it responsibly.
2: I do want to just quickly factually, like the Hamilton County said that in the case of the thin blue line flag at the uh, outside the Cincinnati Police Department, that that was it's that the officers did not take down the American flag. The American flag had been stolen by protesters and they were, you know, raising the thin blue line flag after that. Uh, That is not. To my knowledge been pushed back on or contradicted. So it's you know uh, that may not change your feelings about like the underlying wrongness or rightness of the gesture. It's just important to to note. That. Right.
1: I understand. That that is good. Thank you. Uh, so I, I I tweeted about that and I, I apologize now not knowing that was it. So I, I kinda wanna just just pivot the conversation randomly off the police because I have seen a lot of people uh in my neighborhood in my life in my community lately uh with their Black Lives Matter signs and going to marches and and things like that and I know that some of them I mean I I see you literally people who left the neighborhood for a different whiter neighborhood because you wanted your kids to go to the good schools there or who are paying uh, five figures a year for your kids to go to, to private school or who are showing up saying that you don't want to allow apartment buildings to be built in, in on a vacant lot uh, around the corner on S Street and things like that. and And I feel like there has been both a lot of introspection on the part of white liberals, a lot of decolonize your bookshelf type stuff, a lot of thinking about how you personally interact with other people at work, that kind of thing. But I almost feel like that. It's like a it's like a regression of understanding of the nature of of racial inequity to bring it back into this kind of therapeutic space and that how we a therapeutic space that is white people
0: talking to other white people about black people. But the number of times I like it's such it's like, like, you know, white people recommending that other white people read Ibram Kendi uh, either how to be an anti-racist or stamp from the beginning, which I'm like, great. Or you could have a conversation with Black people. We're here. we we were like, available. This gets back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the episode. Like, God,
2: I can't believe that I have to say this, but, like, not every Black person is alike. And, like, for every person I've heard saying, like, hey, white people, you could be talking to me. I'd rather be talking to you than have you talking to other white people about this. There are lots of people saying oh my God, am I sick of having every white person I know or have ever known checking up on me. Like, I'm not, I am not equipped to do the emotional labor of helping individual white people work through their feelings. That's what other white people should be for. So I, you know, I, I do kind of want to throw that in. Yeah, no, but,
1: but I mean, I, I'm i talking like, non- so I think on the specific subject of police, like we have obviously not as a society, like solved the problem, but people who are progressive minded have come to conceptualize the problem as not fundamentally about the subjectivity of individual police officers, right? But it's about how does the system operate and what objective incentives are built into that system and who is burdened by it?
2: I will say that policy has not been updated to reflect that, but that that is. No, 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 I know.
1: But, But I mean, I'm saying that's where the dialogue is going. And what I would like people to do is take that same insight about police departments and apply it to spheres of life that they plausibly have more control over. Right. It's really challenging to, like, alter how police departments uh, conduct themselves. I hope we will figure it out. I hope we will do further episodes about that. But it's a really hard governance problem. Right. It is quite simple to not move out of the neighborhood that you have been living in uh, when your child turns five years old. Like, that's really easy. You, You can, you can, everyone has not moved at some point in their lives. You can not throw a fit when school district boundaries are redrawn in a way that promotes integration. You could even show up to the meeting and say you think it's a good idea that they're promoting integration right you can uh, support the construction of multifamily housing units in your high-priced suburban neighborhood like there are things that you can do right not not things that you can read or conversations that you can have or, or signs that you can hold, but like concrete actions that you can take that don't involve police bureaucracies that are dominated by um, very conservative people. The people who work in town planning departments and the people who work in education departments, they're super left wing. To be honest, like they would love to force a school reintegration plan on your town. They are afraid of the political backlash to it. So instead of being part of that backlash or being silent and letting it happen, like you can be vocal, you can push on those more open doors, but it asks something of you. Because the flip side, exactly what Jane was saying over policing, under policing, the people most likely to be victimized by police violence are also most likely to be victimized by violent crime. So relatively prosperous white people are almost like bystanders in a lot of these police community issues. And it it could go one way or the other. But in our housing issues, in our schooling issues, in our transportation issues, we are the active participants. And I think that if you're not engaging with those questions on a policy level, I mean, it's it's great to read, um, some books about it, uh, you know, or uh, articles about redlining and its relationship to the racial wealth gap. But it's like, You can do these things like on a monthly basis. There are meetings happening where you live that you could show up at and you could speak up uh, for things, because right now all of those meetings are dominated by cranks who uh, don't want to do anything. And it's it's really bad. It's like an ongoing crisis in America. And it never reaches a point of like such drama and horrificness that it gets people pouring out into the streets. It's instead this like slow day by day, like, like leeching away at our ability to have integrated residential communities, integrated educational environments, and fundamentally uh, settings in which you could have a less inequitable public sphere.
0: Right. The policy decisions that are how we got here. I think that one thing I've been wanting to emphasize is that, like, Yes, uh, like these protests have been taking place in cities across the country because the issues of racial inequity and police brutality and police misconduct are bipartisan, and I think that that's what irritated me. Because I think Dario, you made a good point about like I'm definitely more willing to talk about these issues than I think some people are. But it took me like three days of wanting to just lie on the floor and to cry to get to that point, and now I can do it. But a lot of people don't, ha- shouldn't, and don't want to, and don't have to. But I do think that when we're talking about race and racism, there's a sense of like it's a decision that you make or that it is like a moral calculus that you have made. When in many instances, you know, in the neighborhoods that Matt and Dara and I all live in, there are policy decisions that are responsible for why something is the way it is, the why certain schools look the way it is, the way that you know, certain campaigns, Matt and I have this inside conversation about this ongoing campaign to stop the building of an apartment building, which the signs for which imply that it is going to like, it's a luxury apartment building that would ruin this beautiful lawn when that's not actually what it's about. Racism is not just making a decision to be racist. Racism is in part like the interlocking policies and decisions made by many people who would never think of themselves as, as having any racial bias. You know, we've seen this from, you know, relatively prominent figures like Samantha B in New York, whose husband was one of the a very prominent person attempting to stop the integration of public schools in New York, which are still quite segregated. You know, we see this in places like Seattle and Portland and, you know, even Ann Arbor, places that you think of of having these progressive bona fides. But when push comes to shove, progressive bona fides can't stand up to nimbyism. And so I think that there are actions that people could be taking that are not retweeting videos of people being racist or putting up a black box on their Instagram. But those actions are going to require a lot of asking questions about your own decisions. You know, why why are you here and why are you doing this? And how do you think about this in the context of a community in which you live with people like me? I do think I mean, I I think it's worth being clear about, like, to the
2: extent that this is a regression in the conversation who is doing their aggressing. I think that this is there are a lot of things that activists of color are asking white progressives to do right now and that involves a large swath of thinking about the ways in which you have benefited from like into, you know from from structural racism if you are granting granting its existence then you are therefore granting that you don't have to have been racist or been aware of racism benefiting you for it to have done that and there is i think a willingness to acknowledge that racial equity is going to require individual white people, including progressive white people, ceding some power and resources that, you know, I think in the past got buried behind a little bit of diversity is good for everybody. And, you know, obviously, like we can we all benefit from a more just world. I think that whether that demand is being met is at different question and gets complicated both by the fact that like it's a lot easier to say you're reading a book um, or to retweet a video but also by the fact that like we're still in slash coming out of depending on where in the country you are a pandemic and I think there's it's definitely true in my anecdotal you know observation that some people who were taking social distancing very, very, very seriously have gotten more relaxed generally um, because of the kind of forced updating of, well, if it's worth it for me to go to a Black Lives Matter protest and I feel that I can do that safely, then like maybe I can do other things safely as well. But it's going to take a while, I think, for people to uh, get used to the idea that there are things they can do out in the world immediately. It still does seem a little bit like people are doing the, you know, consuming media because that's a thing you can do at home. And because, you know, while obviously from like, from an, from an activism or organizing perspective, you don't want the targets of your organizing campaign to like, say to like wash their hands two weeks from now and say, great, I've done the thing. You also don't want them to two weeks from now say, well, I keep saying I want to do the thing and there isn't a thing for me to do. And this is very frustrating and I don't know why I should continue bothering.
1: Yep. We've been going on forever and should and should really take a break.
3: Support for the weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines.
2: So this week, we we are tackling cultural and political sociology with math. Kevin Kiley and Stephen Basie of Duke have a uh, paper titled Measuring Stability and Change in Personal Culture Using Panel Data. And it's basically an attempt to adjudicate between two different theories for how public opinion in the aggregate changes. You know, you have a model of, well, People change their minds because they're pressured to by members of their peer group. People change their minds because signals from elites signify that that's a good idea. You know, they change their minds as like new developments come into account, that kind of thing. Uh, versus the idea that generally what people believe about the world is pretty stable from a pretty young age, that it's much more deeply encoded than you would expect from changing your mind based on elite signaling, for example. And that therefore, to the extent that public opinion changes, it's kind of like it's cohort replacement. It's people dying and new people being born and su- such that the composition of adults is going to reflect people who already believed X over Y. What they find is that the second theory, the kind of you're pretty set in your beliefs is generally what's true. The, the methodology here is very Interesting without going, you know, too much through. It. I, I really, I would recommend reading this paper if you can, if you can stomach like theoretical models of things because it's, uh, there's a lot of nuance we're probably not going to be able to get into. But basically, they take three waves of survey data and say, okay, if you changed your mind from wave one to wave two, did you then stay? Did it stay changed in wave three, or did you change your mind again? On the logic that if people were really like persistently changing their beliefs that if you changed it in wave two, you wouldn't then change back. And what they find is a lot of the time, like it's it washes out that people's beliefs are like bouncing around a fixed point rather than kind of moving in a certain direction over time. And it suggests pretty strongly that while this isn't true for gay rights, for example, like they're, they're looking at data from 2006 to 2014, which is a time when like there was a big sea change in, in, Public opinion on gay rights, and they find that it really, there really was some durable opinion change among individuals there. But generally, they are finding that there are some things that people appear to be very consistent in and like care a lot about. There are things that people don't particularly care about and therefore aren't necessarily going to give the same opinion on. And then there are things where people might change their minds, you know, at one point, but it doesn't necessarily mean that
0: they're that they've like changed their minds for good. It's interesting. uh, They make the point that most beliefs about gender roles, sexual morality and abortion appear to be settled by early adulthood. And that the level of consistency and the fact that people, you know, even you, people have heterogeneous views on other subjects, but a lot of these main subjects seem to be pretty standard and people are completely fine holding inconsistent views throughout their lives. But I did find it interesting but they noticed that views about race are extremely inconsistent. You know, it's very hard to predict predict where people are going to go to the point that there's you know they can't even say that they're either settled or updating there seems to not necessarily be the fulcrum around which views on race move yeah i have so many
2: questions about that finding including how it persists for various ethnic groups and like it's worth bearing in mind that what they're working from here is the general social survey um which asks a lot of questions including a lot of like you know, questions about how much people's beliefs accord to stereotypes. So it's possible that there could be much more salient or durable beliefs in terms of, like, whether Black people have, you know, whether Black people are still oppressed by discrimination that might not necessarily be reflected in, like, whether you believe that, you know, whites are more likely to be rich.
1: I I mean, it's a a fascinating paper, right? I mean, because we, at least, like, we all live in D.C. I'm at least, like, pretty suffused in day-to-day politics and there obviously you you sort of like you got to work with the people you have and the tools you have and try to change people's minds in real time uh but so much of the kind of fundamentals are not amenable to that kind of thing right um which I think, you know, we know, right, effect sizes and campaigns are all really, really small. And yet, like, opinion does change, right? Like, There was like 100 years ago, there was a big controversy about should women vote, right? And like, that would be considered absurd to argue about now. And, and you know, the, the question of, of how that happens, actually, is is really interesting. And I guess people die. Uh, Max Planck said that's how change in science progresses too, Um, that uh, science advances one funeral at a time, he said. And I I guess the same is true for politics.
2: Right. I mean, they do find that while I think, you know, political ideology uh, or or political positions tend to be subject to this, that there are things in which people are more likely to, you know, have their opinion once changed, stay changed. And like, that's true of things where of of like behaviors where there's a social institution around it, like people who are who become more likely to like, go out to bars or go to church, for example, though, they're more likely to kind of stay fixed in those practices. And that's something where you do have, you know, not just like interpersonal peer pressure, but also in especially in the case of church, like an affiliation with a broader institution that is leading that is kind of it's pre-identifying or, or kind of preceding praxis, right, that's uh, leading you to engage in these regular activities. And so there's an argument to be made that if you successfully build ideology into social capital, if, for example, like a lot of what you're doing in your social life is, you know, organizing or, you know, being or, or if a lot of your social life is with similar politically minded people talking about politics that you might see to an extent that didn't exist from 2006 to 2014 among America at large, an ability to update beliefs b- based on how your own life practices are changing. They also did find that like some things that are definitely not political, but that you know are certainly kind of well that aren't in the space of partisan politics but that are kind of opinions about what the the good is like opinions on no fault divorce on whether it's acceptable for a person whether like whether it would ever be justified for a person to commit suicide if they went into into bankruptcy that kind of thing that like Opinions on those sort of things where you can imagine having a life event later in life that changes your that forces you to think closely about something for the first time on those issues. People do show a certain number of people do show a surprising willingness late in life to change their minds, although it's not a very large number, which does, again, suggest that like politics is kind of something that happens to people or that people impose upon each other rather than kind of a constant process in the individual mind of a single person.
1: I agree. Fantastic. All right. Uh we should probably wrap this one up. Uh, but we will come back next week, I think, and and solve all the problems in, in American policing, or at least yes. uh or at least or at least talk about some of the some of the ideas that are out there. Um, no, you know, I think until we can then. solve
0: them. I think just <laughs> one podcast can do it. We're finally gonna do it
1: we're gonna get it we're gonna get it um okay so that so that'll be good um until then you know uh thanks to everybody out there for listening uh, thanks to our producer Jeffrey Geld and the weeds will be back on friday